RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. We're discussing the Caribbean Development Bank. And we have with us Dr. Toussaint Poise, the Caribbean Development Bank's Head of the Office of Integrity, Compliance and Accountability. Joining us on the panel today, as with other episodes, we have Robert Waterson. Robert is a regulatory and tax partner at RPC with considerable experience of regulatory disputes, both domestic and international, representing corporates and individuals. Robert has been on both sides of the regulatory fence, having previously worked for government legal services here in the UK. Toussaint, who holds a number of degrees in international law and finance, has also worked on both sides of the regulatory fence, beginning his career as a bright-eyed 21-year-old in the position of general counsel before moving through a number of bank, regulatory and legal positions. Toussaint, Robert, thank you both for joining me and welcome to the episode. Thank you, Alice, and good morning. Toussaint, if I could start with you. How do you feel that your previous experience benefits you in the position that you now hold? I think it's important to understand that I was very fortunate to have a very deep and diverse study and work experience that started as general counsel in a commercial bank in Guyana, South America, which is the only English-speaking country in South America. And that exposed me to issues across every aspect of the bank. So being able to multitask and manage very different and diverse issues was something that I started to grapple with from a very early stage. And then my experience was diversified. The more I learned about banking, then the more I learned about financial practice and financial regulation. And I think that's prepared me perfectly for a role in being able to assist with the governance of an international financial institution like CDB, a regional development bank, where all of these issues intersect, but in a more meaningful way that translates into delivery of development objectives, sustainable, resilient, and inclusive development in the context of CDB. So I'm able to draw on all of my experiences, as well as experiences in other areas of study to deliver in that space. Thank you, Tusam. So, what is the CDB and what does it do? Great question. The CDB, Caribbean Development Bank, was created in 1969, officially commenced in 1970. It was created pursuant to a framework agreement let's call it the charter, among member countries of the region to promote the economic development of the region. At the moment, CDB's mission is to reduce poverty and transform lives through sustainable, resilient, and inclusive development. But that has had a 50-year history of evolution. And the arc of evolution of CDB 
has remained constantly focused on economic development of borrowing member countries of the region, 19 borrowing member countries of the region, but supported totally by 28 members. That include countries like the United Kingdom, Germany, Canada, as well as countries like Mexico and other countries, Colombia and so on, from South America, and of course, the 19 borrowing member countries from the region. So what CDB has been able to do is to make a substantial impact in the way in which development finance is delivered throughout the region and support economic development in each of the board member countries. And Tucson, how does the CDB go about achieving these lofty aims? We support principally through loans and grants and other development interventions, as well as thought leadership and providing a platform around which development ideas are identified and implemented throughout the region. You may have heard about the volcanic eruption in one of our member countries in the Grenadines. We're able to respond to natural disasters within the region. We're able to respond to promote climate change adaptation, as well as climate resilient economies. We're able to promote and support economic development and planning in our individual borrowing member countries across many, many areas. The infrastructure is a large part of what we do. We also support their development and their economic planning, etc. And so we use all of our techniques, instruments, and avenues for intervention to help to resolve a broad swath of problems that the region faces. We do some proactively and some reactively, but as the region's only indigenous regional development bank, of course, there are other players in the space, the World Bank and the IDB, et cetera, but as the region's only indigenous regional development bank, we have an opportunity, unlike any other institution, to work from the ground up to exist at ground level and to be able to understand and deploy very quickly human as well as economic resources and capital to help to resolve those problems. Tucson, as I mentioned during the introduction, you hold the position of Head of the Office of Integrity, Compliance and Accountability. What does that mean in the context of the bank as a whole? Again, a very crucial question because it's important to understand that in the evolution of institutions like CDB, when it was created 50, 51 years ago, terms like corruption, anti-money laundering compliance, accountability for environmental social harm did not really exist. You heard about audit offices and ethics functions, or at least internal frameworks to manage those issues. And so what all development banks, including CDB, has discovered over the years is that in our chart, in our case, the agreement establishing the Caribbean Development Bank, paragraph 15D, there is a fiduciary duty to ensure that every dollar of development funding that we advance, whether by loan or grant or, or otherwise, reaches its intended beneficiaries. And that is a major basis upon which all of our work has developed. So 50 years ago, CDB was created. About 30 years ago, ethics offices were established as part of an internal governance function. Audit offices were also established from the get-go. But then we began to build on those to be able to support that fiduciary duty. So 27 years ago, you would have heard the mantra of do no harm. Your project should do no harm. And as a result, offices were created to respond to that. And those were called accountability offices or independent accountability mechanisms. 26 years ago, when... James Wolfenson, in a speech to the World Bank's annual meeting, delivered a masterful speech on the cancer of corruption that then led to the creation of integrity offices led by the World Bank that focused principally on not just what was previously done where banks like ours would lend and look away from issues like fraud and corruption and say those were issues for those countries to manage. Instead, we created internal, independent, robust mechanisms called integrity offices that responded directly, proactively through prevention, detection, et cetera, as well as reactively through investigations and sanctions to those concerns that might 
impact that fiduciary duty. And so those integrity or institutional integrity offices fundamentally cover issues like fraud and corruption, but can go broad in some cases. Around 25 years ago, you then had the development of these integrity offices being twinned or also supported by what we call compliance functions, which developed really heavily in the last 20 years to focus on anti-money laundering compliance to ensure that none of our funding was diverted by criminal actors and fed into the financial system through laundering and other illegitimate means. And so those five functions that I described are really what CDB has managed to do in its own evolution, and which has led to, to ICA. Now, ICA itself was created in 2015 by the bank, taking into consideration all of what I just mentioned. The arc of evolution of development banks meant that 50 years ago, the risks that we faced were very different to the risks that we face today or the risks that we faced five years ago. There was a need to respond to all of those issues. And so as a result, the bank created what was called a strategic framework, which fortunately I was able to design to create a convergence of those five functions that I mentioned. Why a convergence? Because it was possible. Again, using my own commercial banking, investment banking, finance attorney, regulatory background, it's the kind of thing that you would see more in the private sector, being able to merge offices and functions and be able to look for synergies, not just from a cost-cutting perspective, but from a perspective that made sense, where information was able to be dynamically shared, where you were able to be forward-looking. And the key strategy for us at the time was to emphasize prevention. And as a result of that strategy, every aspect of ICA was built out in phases to respond to the risks that I mentioned earlier. So that strategic framework led to the creation, at the time of its approval, to the office ICA, which is a convergence of those five functions. And so that is how, if you were to look seamlessly in terms of the evolution of CDB the institution to ICA, to be able to create a modern internal governance framework that was able to respond to a plethora of risks that were arising and that would be challenging the modern development bank. Thank you, Tucson. Robert, you have a perspective outside of the CDB. How do you see the role of smaller development banks within this more general multilateral development bank space? Thanks, Alice. I think it's important to emphasise that multilateral development banks are unique organisations in the world. They're unique in the way that they operate and the way that they exist and the way that they came about. And I think it's very tempting to try and lump the various MDBs into one category. So you have the traditional big five that we're familiar with, led by the, uh, the World Bank. And then the rest, in inverted commas, and the idea that the smaller MDBs are just reflections of the larger ones on a smaller scale. I think this is a mistake. Each MDB, large or small, uh, is unique and has its own peculiarities, if I can put it like that. I think from a practitioner's point of view, it's important to understand the motivations and the drivers behind the establishment of each MDB, because they occupy a very particular spot in the world and they have very specific aims. And even in circumstances where different MDBs appear to have similar objectives, so for instance, the CDB's aim is to eradicate poverty in the region, which may be similar to other organisations, they each have their own unique drivers and perspectives. This can be down to, for instance, geographic location because of cultural differences which may exist between different peoples around the world and so on. 
So it's very important, I think, to understand this perspective first. Each MDB occupies a different position in the world, and when working out how to deal with organisations of this nature and interact with them, it's very important that the organisation, the individual, the institution, establishes what the motivations are behind the bank's approach and really adopts and co-ops those aims and ambitions for itself and its projects and outlook. It needs to demonstrate clearly that they represent and want to participate in the aims and objectives of the MDB itself from the start, but also in the way that they work throughout that process. I think the CDB and the way in which Tucson's office and role has developed over time, the way that he's described it, is unique in the world of MDBs. And if I could just add a little bit more by way of background, Alice, it's interesting that Tucson refers to President Wilson's speech back in the mid-90s, the so-called cancer of corruption speech, because in a sense that became the catalyst for the development of the whole series of new structures across the MDBs and IFIs around the world. The focus at that time was, of course, on the World Bank, but his words have resonated around the world and it's had a dramatic effect on MDBs and IFIs, And it's really fascinating to see, from a practitioner's point of view, the way that each organisation, essentially seeking out the same common aim, has approached it in different ways. So you have systems which, although unique, are seeking to achieve the same goal. One of the exciting things about this area is that it's dynamic, and there's an awful lot of learning to do all the time for the institutions and practitioners. That's because you're dealing with the shifting threat of corruption around the world. So it's very important, I think, that organisations really engage with the processes, aims and objectives of the particular MDB they are dealing with in order to understand exactly what is expected of them throughout their interaction with the bank. How would you describe how the convergent model you mentioned applies and how does it actually work in practice? Yeah, so the way it works is all MDBs are on the same road when it comes to combating risks like corruption and fraud and anti-money laundering, ensuring that their projects do no harm, ensuring as well that they cover internal ethics issues that may impact things like staff misconduct and also helping to have really strong intake systems for whistleblowing complaints, etc. You can say we're all on the same road, but we're driving different cars. And some of us are driving cars that are an amalgam of an SUV and a Mini Cooper. And in our case, that is really our convergence model. Based on our risks, our resources, and our operating environment, we have managed to take inspiration from catalysts like the Cancer of Corruption Initiative, for instance, that followed James Wilson's speech, as well as, most importantly, I should say, that fiduciary duty in our charter to try to create an internal governance framework and the model for IKE itself that responds to all of those modern risks. So we've tried to build our car in a way that is able to drive for us. And what that car looks like is, at the front end, a very robust whistleblower system with six channels including a telephone hotline, a web form, mail, physical office visits if necessary, as well as email. That's the first function. That function has delivered from us from the first day of the creation of ICA. All six channels are used. Then the second aspect of that convergence is our institutional integrity office, which is the largest of the five functions. And that function responds to 
any issues related to fraud and corruption proactively to prevent and detect, reactively to investigate, and also sanction, uh, suspend, etc. Take actions that would support this bank to adhere to the highest principles of integrity and protect the funding that we provide to beneficiaries. The third function is the ethics function, which is focused on ensuring that we prevent staff misconduct and where staff misconduct occurs, we're able to conduct internal investigations and then make referrals for disciplinary action as necessary or otherwise to support the bank. So there's a lot of training involved, et cetera, for staff members. The third function leans against our internal systems and external operations and funding that we provide to beneficiaries and receive in return being tainted or impacted by money laundering terrorist financing concerns, and other financial sanctions. And that function we simply call the compliance function. And that function is one that is seeing the most evolution because this is a very hot area. And so there's a lot of work still to be done there. The fifth function is the function that simply says, do no harm. The projects that we fund, the finance that we provide, should not do any harm to those beneficiaries to whom it's intended to help. And quite simply, that function is called the accountability function, accountability for environmental and social harm in particular. So we have managed to take five diverse legacy governance functions, converge them into a single office that we've managed to find a way to create. And over the last five years, we've managed to confirm that it can work based on our operating environment, risks and resources. ICA's convergence is wrapped in independence the entire office, which is important to be able to know that we report directly and functionally to the board of directors. And so this unique convergence and the independence enables us to take not just a holistic approach, but also a very innovative and very balanced approach that is agile and synergistic in that we're able to take information, learning, as well as the experience across different functions and to be able to move dynamically to deliver on our mandate. While we also learn from other offices that are similarly positioned in other MD. So that's our convergence and how it works for us. Thank you, Tusam. Robert, from the perspective of external companies and their advisors, particularly those who are engaging with the CDB, how important is it that the system the CDB has is independent? This is one of the key areas, I think, where one often finds that businesses and institutions are surprised at the manner in which MDBs have historically operated. So it isn't a given that there will be this kind of demarcation that Tucson has described between the functions of his office and the operation of the bank as a whole. And what he's described through the convergent model is a system which is born out of practicality in the sense that as a smaller institution, there are fewer people who therefore have to do more. But it has the benefit that Tucson's team have an opportunity to see the process from beginning to end, rather than it simply being a situation where a problem arises and a problem has to be dealt with at that stage. That very much mirrors the approach which I think the CDB itself would expect of their partners and people who borrow from the bank. Prevention, in this sense, is a key component of the convergent model that is described, and it's rooted in the way in which Tucson's office operates. When it comes to situations where there's disagreement or an investigation into a particular event or a particular business operation, having due process and separation in the sense that there's an independent body which considers the matter without operating under the management of the institution itself is critically important. So coming from the UK, where there's an adversarial system with evidential rules and processes, it's very important that those are mirrored to the extent they can be within the operation of the MDB. 
The independence that Tucson has described in relation to his own office is then taken to its natural extension, which is once you get to the stage where you've had a decision taken and there's a sanctions appeal officer process, which involves a wholly independent legal practitioner who reviews and considers matters as they arise and will effectively give judgment on those issues. We can return later to the points in relation to immunity and so on, but in relation to the SDO and SAO positions, these are independent appointees, usually legal practitioners who sit to consider these matters afresh, and it should give confidence to the institutions and individuals who find themselves subject to investigation, and that they will have an opportunity to participate in that process and that there's transparency to it. This is critically important. Toussaint. You mentioned earlier that the whistleblowing procedures the CDB has in place have been effective. How do you measure this and what findings have come out of that measurement process? We have had to operationalize five functions. We've had to do that in a phased and incremental way. So the first one we started with was the whistleblowing function. So we were very keen to put a lot of energy into ensuring that we had something that was right size for us and that really worked. And that particular function received a lot of attention from the get-go. So there was a lot of consultation and and debate and exchange with our board as to what that should look like and what it should cover. And most importantly, how are we going to be able to test effectiveness and respond in the event that any channel was, for instance, underused? We have six channels. Some institutions have less, and that is because it's more useful for them to have less. But in our case, we went for breath. Given that we intended to receive all forms of complaints and submissions from persons of all levels of sophistication. So if you prefer to type on a web form, you're able to do that. If you prefer to use a a telephone hotline, you're able to do that. The first key measure of effectiveness for us was to ensure that they were all working, were able to deliver auditable reports, and they were tested by our auditors as well, and that they were all being used. And from our experience since 2016, all have been used to the point where some have been even overused. If you look at our email, we started by measuring contacts, just all contacts. We started very broadly by tracking the numbers, not always whittling it down to those numbers that led to actual cases. And the numbers were astronomical. We also received a lot of spam through our email. So that was accounting for about 68% of our intake of contacts. So in 2016, we had about 1,026 contacts. But we did 22 investigations based on solid complaints that came through the six channels. In 2017, we had over 3,000 contacts. Again, that led to about 31 solid investigations that came through after screening those matters. 2018, it was about 2,044 contacts. And then we started to think about seriously throttling it to ensure that we were able to better measure the effectiveness of the actual system in terms of number of complaints that came in. That led in 2018 to about 47 investigations in 2019 to 43 investigations. And most recently in 2025, in our soon-to-be-released annual report, 55 investigations. The important point to note, at least in our case, is that each of those six channels are being used. And every time we think about maybe one is being underutilized and we should consider removing it, it tends to be used. The one that's most tricky for most international organizations is the hotline. And some do not use it because they find it's heavily underused. In our case, we have seen the hotline be used by some relatively unsophisticated persons. But in our case, what's important is that our hotline is globally accessible to all 20 of our board member countries. It is also multilingual. It is managed externally by a service in the U.S. that also handles a lot of large private institutions and financial institutions. 
And most importantly, it assists certainly with confidentiality. We're able to take anonymous complaints as well. And that extra layer, I think, supports our independence as an office in terms of intake, but it also gives confidence in the confidentiality and complaints management of that process. Each person who uses that hotline or the web form is given a number, a code, sorry, that they can then use to log in to track and follow up their complaints. And we have found that each of those channels are used, even the, the mail channel where persons write snail mail to us has been used. So that is, I think, our way of looking at not only effectiveness, but our approach to six channels, a broad approach to it. And so as a result, we believe our whistleblower function has been working effectively over the last five years. Most recently in 2020, in our soon-to-be-released annual report, you will see that we received 169 contacts and that from those contacts, we managed 55 investigations. Can I ask a question on that, Toussaint? So I noticed that as you were describing it, there's obviously an increase over time in both the number of the complaints and the number of investigations. Yes. Is there any correlation between that and the amount of lending that the bank does? Or is it just that people are getting better at reporting and are more aware of your office's functions? The latter. The more effective and far-reaching our outreach has been, the more we've seen an increase in contacts and in actual cases. But I think there's also something else to mention on your first point. We started really throttling out the spam and throttling out the repetitions in 2019. So we moved from 3,000 to 169 clean contacts last year. And that was more reflective of, of what? So we threw away like thousands of emails that were just not relevant to us. So all of those factors contributed. But I think most importantly, I would say it's accessibility. You can come at us many ways. And we have staff who literally come to the office for those physical, in-person complaints. But following on from what Tucson has described about how there is a balance between protecting and encouraging good actors and detecting and deterring bad ones, do you think, from an external perspective, we're striking the right balance? I think in many respects this is a work in progress for the Caribbean Development Bank. In the same way that it is for all MDBs and IFIs, the process will never be over. The systems for weeding out corruption and fraud and money laundering and so on that will be a process that will require constant renewal. Tucson has described the breadth of the system that they have in place in order to make as many possible points of contact with the public, with people in the industry, with people in other organisations, and indeed people within his own organisation. And that has to be the right approach. Does that mean that every email and communication will lead to an investigation? Obviously not. But clearly the net has to be cast as widely as possible because this will be a constant fight. And I think it's important to link this again back to the purposes and objectives of the bank. For all types of corruption, whatever it may be, it's not just about the misappropriation of funds. It cuts to the heart of what the bank is trying to eradicate. If the aim is to eradicate poverty and inequality, corrupt practices by organisations, by individuals within those organisations, they act to defeat these objectives. In this way, they cut right back to the founding principles of the bank. Do I think they're getting the balance right? Yes, I do. I think that it is appropriate that the systems from international institutions such as the CDB have evolved over time. It's important that there's accountability and it's important that there's investigation. 
And it goes hand in hand with this, that where there are the investigated, that the processes and procedures that are in place are transparent and fair. This gives an opportunity for contribution and cooperation and improvement, which I think is what everybody is aiming for. Turning to you, Tosom, how does the CDB system fit within the wider MDB sanctions and debarment community? We aim for harmonisation with respect to our processes for investigation and procedures for investigation as well as sanctions. Obviously, given our size, risks, resources, footprint, the way in which we work and other factors, we can't replicate what, for instance, the World Bank or the IDB or other larger MDBs have. So what we try to do is to ensure that first principles dominate, due process is our first priority, and ensure that we develop a system that reflects that. In our case, we've developed a rostered system of talent support, and through that system, we're recruiting sanctions officers and sanctions appeal officers who will be able to serve through that independence of the office. More importantly, what we're trying to do, and this is a great part of our current evolution, is ensure that we fine-tune what we have to be able to deliver due process and best practice, but on a platform that is robust, credible, reliable, transparent, understandable, and harmonize as far as possible with other MDBs. And to do that, we collaborate heavily with them, learning from them, learning from their mistakes, their cases, situations where their sanction system are tested, including in, in courts, etc., tweaking ours. And even though we don't engage in cross-debarment, we have the next best thing, which is we're able to adopt those decisions, those sanction decisions that result in cross-debarment, which really is an important way that small institutions like us have to develop our investigation and sanctions regime because the two go together. So consistency, I think, is key in terms of how we collaborate with our development banks and learn from them to develop our own, but also tailoring it to our particular circumstances and understanding that we have to deliver it with accountability, internal and external, because external parties are impacted, is a key reason why actually we're in the process of drafting new procedures and tweaking old ones then sure we get it right. And back to you, Robert. What about the perspectives of companies and individuals who are engaging as either witnesses, third parties, or even respondent companies? The point which I take from Tucson's comments is the importance of collaboration across MDBs and IFIs in order for them to improve their position as broadly as possible. There are numerous instances where the CDB and others have worked together, have shared information in order to benefit from each other's processes and grow as institutions. I think that collaborative approach has to be embraced by the corporates and institutions which deal with the bank, and in particular for those facing investigation. I think it's important to keep this in mind, particularly for those who are more familiar with an adversarial system, that when you have an investigation by an MDB, or even initial inquiries, they're not dealing with civil litigation, they're not dealing with a criminal investigation, they're dealing with something quite separate from those things. It's really an administrative process, which is informed by all the elements we have described, going right back to the direction and obligation of the bank itself. That collaborative approach, being familiar with the systems, procedures that the CDB has in place in order to deal with any inquiries as they come, is very much at the centre. Now, I think it's critical to accept there are situations, of course, where there are problems. I think that's something that respondents, so the companies and individuals that find themselves subject to investigation, have to understand. They need to see that there's a possibility that there's been a problem that will need to be dealt with. And they need to understand that there's a right and a wrong way to deal with that. 
For most organisations, they don't set out on a path to be involved in some kind of corruption, and they may find that quite unwittingly, because of a failure in their own systems or because of something which they'd never even expected before, they found themselves at the wrong end of an investigation. And in those circumstances, I think that it is key for them to understand and really get to the root of these issues so that they can cooperate and commit their organisations to improving and to finding resolution to whatever issue has arisen with the bank so that they can avoid the worst types of sanctions which can exist, the highest, of course, being debarment. In so doing, they will want to demonstrate that they can improve as institutions themselves to make sure that those types of issues don't happen again. So I think, as I say, cooperation is really the touchstone and really getting to the root of issues rather than simply battening down the hatches as somebody who was perhaps more familiar with normal litigation would do. It's not going to work, it's not going to be productive and it will probably end badly in those circumstances. An additional point, of course, in relation to MDBs in general, and I think this links to the idea that you're not dealing with standard litigation or a criminal investigation, is that MDBs themselves have privileges and immunities which the CDB enjoys, as well as other international organisations. They are immune from legal suit themselves, and there's no appeal from the sanctions appeal officer's decision. It's not a situation where you could go to a national court or seek judicial review or anything similar. So you have to operate within the processes and structures which exist within the MDB itself. And it's important that companies who engage from the outset really engage and that they have to play by the rules and commit to their processes in order for there to be no problems along the way. Recording this episode in 2021, Tucson, it's important to ask, how has the COVID pandemic impacted the CDB? Uh, this is a great question. COVID has been a major challenge that has forced CDB as an organization, and Ike in particular, into reflection mode. Other than being disruptive and, and challenging in, in myriad ways, the opportunity to reflect, I think, was, was paramount, at least certainly for me, in the type of office that we have. Given as well that we are heavily dependent on travel to be able to do our work, collaboration in-country, and to be able to do things like outreach, elevator awareness among board member countries, to conduct in-person interviews, do investigations, visit sites, etc. It was very devastating in its immediate impact on our ability to deliver that part of our mandate. But it was also an opportunity for us to test the resilience of our strategy, What's important is to understand that there was no blueprint for building ICA, but the idea behind the strategy was to be able to build a framework and an office that lasts, a framework and an office that was resilient and able to weather any type of crisis that we can foresee. I don't think anyone really foresee the type of crisis that COVID presented, but at least we had the foundation, the groundwork there, so that we were able to easily switch having developed a lot of dependence on things like digital tools to remote working to test ourselves in that regard, we were also able to continue to deliver value by being able to use virtual communication with parties, in some cases, even where it might not have been the best circumstances to 
continue to collaborate and work on our matters, to be able to engage with persons to identify and mitigate risks. And most importantly, I think, if we look to the areas that were impacted, intake, for instance, one of our whistleblower channels is that you can visit the office to be able to confidentially and securely in person deliver your submission or confidential report. If you requested anonymity afterwards, that was entirely up to you, but at least you were able to visit the office, present your documentation. That was one aspect that was not possible. Another one was being able to visit our member countries to do outreach exercises that require travel, as well as to support our operations area whenever they do their project launches to be able to get the message out. That too was not possible. As I mentioned, visiting project sites for investigations. But on the other side, we were able to use the opportunity for use of more virtual tools to increase our training, to increase our review of what risks we needed to identify, including an uptick in issues like fraud risks. So we're able to educate heavily our internal audience on the likely increase in fraud risks, ensuring that our internal controls were tightened. So we're able to use the other side of COVID, which is the forced remote work environment and virtual tools to do that. And remarkably, over the five-year history of ICA, we have done about 25 different training topics, the majority of which were covered in 2020 alone, using virtual training. And I'm saying that because we also added, during the COVID period, the first of its kind, a conference that we call the Caribbean Conference on Corruption, Compliance, and Cybercrime, three seats. And that was delivered virtually. It was planned and delivered entirely virtually from the office. We had over 60 speakers, 12 sessions, and it was so highly and well-reviewed that we were inspired to ensure it's now an annual event. But that was entirely virtual. And I think COVID would not have allowed us to have exceeded the expectations that we did. We planned for 200 registered attendees. We had close to 500 unique logins. We had about 2,600. All of that was facilitated because of uh, a virtual audience and virtual delivery. So we were able to reach persons across the region and as far away as Geneva because we were able to deliver a virtual conference that was forced because of COVID. So if there was a silver lining, I think it's that it caused us to reflect, to reimagine what tools we need to be able to deliver what we were going to deliver. So instead of an in-person conference that we were going to have for 100 or 200 people, we now were able to reach a multiple of that number and to deliver value to a much broader audience. And then now we're going to make that into an annual thing. So that's an example of how ICA has been able to, to weather COVID. And I think it has also enabled us to set an example for the rest of the bank in terms of how small offices like ours can deliver huge value despite the challenge and crisis. And then most recently, we've had the volcano, which has also forced us back in terms of being able to do some of the investigative work we were hoping to do post-COVID. But again, that is just another crisis. And I think to sum it up, crises tend to focus your mind on short-term prevention and mitigation measures, which tend to fade very quickly until the next crisis comes. I think the important message is that if you're modeling, in this case, our strategy and our office and how we work, if it's built a foundation that enables it to go through good and bad times, the same trust and confidence and that foundation is sufficiently robust, then I think it will really help you to deliver regardless of the type of crisis you face. And so hopefully we've been able to demonstrate that and we're able to continue that. Was it perfect? No. But was it successful? Certainly yes, despite the odds of COVID. Our time is nearly at an end for this episode. Robert, in light of our discussions, could I ask you for your final thoughts for our listeners? 
Firstly, it's good to hear from Tucson about what can only be described as a COVID success story and that they've managed to find new opportunities and ways to improve things through the pandemic at a time when many institutions have retreated. I think that there's an inevitability that COVID is going to lead to an increased amount of work for Tucson and his team, as well as for practitioners in this field. We at RPC are dealing with both on the state and multinational level with institutions which have had to increase the amount of funding they've issued over very short spaces of time and involving much wider reach. And that's because this crisis required an immediate and flexible response, perhaps in a unique way. There will be a time of reckoning. There will be a period when it will be necessary for corporates and institutions to take stock of the funding which has been provided to them and establish whether it was appropriate and whether or not corrections need to be made. Now, I've seen that at a state level already. In the UK, for example, we've seen situations where funding was issued and it had to be given back. That process has been, in many cases, collaborative, and governments have asked people to self-assess whether or not funding was correctly issued, received and utilised, and if not, for it to be returned voluntarily. That's been quite successful. However, there have been and will be more instances where a more robust approach will be taken. I think there's going to be an awful lot more work to do in that area, taking a collaborative approach, taking stock and considering appropriately the reason why funding was received, what it was utilised for and establishing properly whether or not it was used in the correct way is something which is an obligation for companies as well as the institutions themselves. In terms of final thoughts on the CDB itself, I go back to a theme which has passed through this discussion, which is to understand why the CDB exists and what it is designed to do and to ensure that if you're an organisation which hopes to receive funding, that you become a participant in those objectives and do not view their processes and controls as a barrier or something to be avoided. We're witnessing a new horizon in the way in which the MDBs and the CDB specifically focus on and tackle corruption. This is very much one of the issues of our time, and they're only going to get more sophisticated at dealing with it. And lastly, Toussaint, if I could ask you, do you have any specific advice for any of our listeners who may have cause to interact with your office? Understand that we work tirelessly to ensure that the fiduciary duty of the bank to mitigate all types of risks related to our delivery of development financing to the beneficiaries is always robust, always engaged. Also to understand that ICA is an office that is unique in its convergence of five independent governance functions, but that we're able to deliver big value. We're able to collaborate with other offices of all kinds and do so seamlessly. That we're able to communicate and live out our mandate in a way which we hope will continue to evolve and continue to grow. We're far from perfect. If they understand too that in the arc of evolution of an institution like CDB, the importance of having an office like ICA and to understand that in the way in which they engage with us. And by this, I mean stakeholders of all kinds, including practitioners who may find themselves as part of our process. I think it's super important for them to understand we do not just exist on paper. We perform a very important function in the way in which development banks deliver development funding. Our importance is increasing the more that risks increase across the world. And where I would end is with a quote from Bob Marley, who says, the people who are trying to make the world worse are not taking a day off. Why should I? 
Unfortunately, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thank you very much to Toussaint and Robert for their insights and unique perspectives on the operation of the Caribbean Development Bank. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giants series, where we are joined by representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the New Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank, and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald. And our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John McKendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.